Good morning, Riverside. How are we doing today? My name is Ezra. I'm one of the pastors here at Riverside. I'm excited to come and to share a word with you uh, this morning uh, from the book of Colossians. And so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some by their door and you can feel free to grab one um, and take it as a gift from us. Let me uh, begin with a word of prayer and uh, we'll, we'll jump in this morning. Father, we thank you for this chance uh, to just come into your presence, Lord, to worship you, uh, to seek your face, Lord, to know that, um, uh, that you are you're holy, God, that you, you love us uh, beyond anything we can comprehend or, or understand. And uh, we're, we're drawn here this morning because we want to know you. And we know that your, your word in the Bible is the place to, to find you, uh, to know you, uh, to grow in our knowledge of you. And so we want to do that this morning, God. We don't want to just have an experience with you, but we want to, to grow in our knowledge of you. Uh, we want to, to know you more deeply. Uh, today. Help us to do that, God. We can't do that apart from your work in our heart. Uh, so I just pray that you would do that um, and work in the way that only you can this morning. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you uh, turn to Colossians chapter 3 in your Bible, we're going to continue in the, uh, the above series. And I want to begin with a question this morning. The question is, what, what is your life? What, what defines your life? What, uh, what would you say, that is what defines me as a, as a person, as a human being. I know uh, a few years ago, our daughter Emma told us that Disney Channel was her life. She's nodding. She agrees. And, uh, and we're like, Disney Channel is your life? And she's like, and butter. Butter is my life. And those are the two things that she couldn't imagine doing life without those two things. And so, so a lot of times kids are more honest <laughs> than, we, than we are with ourselves. If we, if we self-evaluate for a few moments here and we just think about what is it that really I center my life upon, what is it that defines me as a person? Uh, it could be our fandom of a, of a sports team. You know, that might be the thing that we lead with all the time, that we, we wear our colors up front, that we're, that we're fans of a certain sports team. It might be a, a hobby that you have. Uh, maybe you're, you're into crafts. Maybe you're into knitting. Maybe you're into cats. Maybe you're into video games, right? What, one of those things. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe your, your grandkids have become your life, that you would just pour yourself out for your grandkids. Or, or maybe your spouse is your life or your, or your children, Right? Uh, for kids, maybe it's, it's your parents, pleasing your parents. That's probably not it, right? <laughs> but it could be. Is it golf? Is it, is, it, is it some sort of recreational activity? Is it a vacation? Uh, you know, is it, man, I just live to get away. I, you know, I live, I live for the weekends. I live to just have, have some leisure time. Is, is your life defined by chaos? You say, you know what, my life is defined, but it's not by anything good. It's by, it's by I just feel out of control. My, my life is defined by my lack of ability to control it. You know, one way to evaluate this is to think about if you went on a, a website like Facebook or whatever and it said, hey, you haven't completed your profile, uh, just, just give us like two sentences that tell us who you are. What would you write? You might want to pull your Facebook up real quick and say, what did I write when they asked me who I was, right? How do you, how do you define yourself? Is it, is it where you're from? Is it who you're, you're connected to? Is it where you went to school? Uh, well, sadly, there's, uh, sometimes th these things can become... Uh, it, it plays out where we see that things are true life. Uh, in, in 2008, when the market adjusted, when the bubble popped and, and Wall Street was in turmoil and chaos, there was, there was a number of, of, of high-position, high-profile Wall Street bankers who took their lives, right, because their life was tied up into their job. And when the market crashed and everything that they had built up was wiped away and some of their unethical practices were exposed, they decided that there was no point in going forward anymore. Sometimes it's not that obvious. Sometimes it's a little bit 
more hidden, but, but in those moments you see what it is. Here's another way to think about it. Uh, what's the thing in your life that if you lost it uh, would make it feel like it wasn't worth living anymore? What's the thing that if it was taken away, you'd be like, man, it's, there's just no point in going on if I don't have that anymore? Or conversely, when things do go really difficult, what's the thing that you turn to? What's the thing when, when things are falling apart, you're just like, man, I'm, I, I just turn to this? It could be alcohol, it could be drugs, it could be food. It could be just escapism. Man, I just need to just go watch a movie. I just need to, to turn my brain off. And, and, and none of these things in and of themselves are bad, but when they become the very center of our life, when our life is defined around them, uh, then it becomes a problem, right? And so we're in church, uh, in case you didn't know, right? And so, so you're not going to be surprised by what I tell you here. And so I'll just go ahead and do the big reveal right away, right? Like the, this passage is telling us that Jesus needs to be at the center of our life, that, 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 that Christ is our life if we've placed our faith in him, that, that that's the reality, that, that he is our life. Whether we acknowledge it all the time, whether we recognize it, or whether we admit it, that's the reality that we should live within. But so many of us, myself included, right, like we struggle to keep that at the forefront of our minds. We, we, we forget, and so we need to be continually reminded of this truth. And so that's what this passage is about today. Uh, so we're going to look at Colossians chapter 3. We're going to pick up in verse 1. We're going to read 1 through 11. It will be up here on the screen for you if you, if you want to follow along or in your Bible as well. It says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. It's a powerful passage. There's a lot packed in there. And there's a lot that we can kind of agree with on uh, we're like, yeah, yeah, I get that. But, but there's another level where you're like, man, I, I don't really get that. You know what I mean? I, I believe it's true because it's in the Bible, but I'm not really sure what this means uh, for me on a daily basis. We're called to set our minds on Christ and to seek the things that are above. And we're told that we have, we have died. And so we want to look at this. What, what, does it, what does it look like to set our minds on things that are above? What, what does it mean that we, we have died? How do we embrace that in our daily existence? Uh, have you guys heard this, this phrase that they say, um, oh, that person is so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good, right? <laughs> they're so heavenly minded they're of no earthly good. And, uh, and that is not what Paul is encouraging us towards here, right? He's not encouraging us towards this sort of wispy, just kind of walking like a zombie through where, hey, I've already punched my ticket to heaven, I'm booked, I'm just waiting to get out of here kind of thing where we don't engage with the world. That's, that's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to be heavenly minded so that we can make a powerful impact in the world here and now, that we can live lives that are much more full and rich than any other possible way. This, this idea that we are in 
the image of God. Look at verse 10. It says, and we have put on our new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, the reality is we read that and we say like, yeah, I know it says that I've died, but man, there's, there's parts of me that I'm not sure I want to die. You know, there's parts of my life that I like. And so, so I, I kind of want to hang on to those. You know, do I have to just get rid of, do I have to let go of everything to follow after Jesus? And what I would encourage you is that, that, that following Jesus and having your life hidden in Christ and dying to your flesh actually enables you to live the fullest, most rich version of yourself that there is. When we're, when we're entrapped and entangled in sin, it, it twists us and it, and, it, and it turns us from who we truly and deeply are. And so there's nothing that you will get rid of in dying uh, for Christ that, that, that you will miss. Does anybody ever go back and, do you ever go back and look at your old cell phone? And, and by your old cell phone, I mean the one you were using like six months ago, right? That is completely outdated now, right? And you go back and you pick it up and you're like, Oh, this thing feels so far. How did I even do anything on it? It's like the screen is so, right? Like you, you can't even figure out how to use it. And yet uh, just six months ago, it was like a, an extension. It was like your, uh, your extra appendage, right? Like you used it. It was, it was just an extension of who you were and, and you're so connected to it. But when you move on to something better, the old one just pales in comparison. And that's what he's pointing a picture of here. That, that if we set our minds above, if we live and seek Christ with our life, that we're going to live a life that's going to make these earthly things that he lists off here, this, this sexual immorality, this anger, this wrath, this malice, that, that those things that we held on to and looked to for, uh, for, for purpose and for righteousness and for existence, they're going to pale by comparison. That once we leave them behind, we'll never miss them. So we're going to keep this pretty simple today. We're really just going to look at two things. Uh, why should we set our mind on things that are above? And how do we do it? Right? Why? What's the, what's the motivation? What's the reasoning behind it? as he's calling us to do this. And then, how do we do it? What does it actually look like in our real lives? So let's begin with why, right? He says very clearly, he says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's this phrase here, our life is hidden with Christ. And, and commentators have different ideas about what this means and what's, what's being portrayed here. Um, I, I like the idea that it's, there's so much solidarity between us and Christ that we've so become one with him that, that our life is indistinguishable uh, from him, right? It's, it's like we're hidden within Christ because we, we are so connected to him is, is one piece of it. It's also a reflection of uh, the language in the Psalms and the prophets where it talks about being in, hidden in the shadow of his wings or like, like a mother uh, hen, like gathering her flock, right? There's this idea of like protected, like our life is protected when it's with Christ, right? That's a powerful, a powerful truth and, and something to grab a hold of. There's also an element in which this is already true, but, but it's not yet fully realized. And so for an external person to look at you in a crowd, they wouldn't say, yep, that one's with Jesus. Yep, that, right? Like, they don't know. There's a, there's a piece of it that's kind of hidden and is only exposed and brought to the surface through the life that we live as we live in relationship with each other. And so, so we've got to understand what this means to be hidden with Christ, and really what it's pointing to is this, this great exchange that the Bible talks about. It says that, that Jesus has exchanged his perfect righteousness uh, for the penalty that we deserved. And that, that at the cross, when Jesus died, he took the penalty for our sins and he placed his righteousness upon us as if we had lived a perfect, spotless life without any sin. And, and this sort of righteousness is, is actually kind of hard for us to grasp and understand. 
the word righteousness, uh, it's, it's one of these big churchy words, right? You just think, you know, righteousness, holiness, right? <laughs> it just kind of drifts off there somewhere. But the word righteousness, in a real basic sense, it's a relational word. It talks about having a right relationship with someone else, that, that I am right with that person. There's a righteous relationship. They view me as righteous versus rejecting me. So it's, it's, it's acceptance, it's, it's being viewed as righteous, as, as being right versus being rejected. And we, and we walk through these relationships all the time, right? Like the, uh, the uh, political spectrum, right? <laughs> some people view Hillary as righteous and Donald is rejected and, and some vice versa. They view Donald as righteous and some uh, reject him and some reject both of them, right? <laughs> and I don't know anybody that thinks they're both righteous, right? <laughs> like, have you met anybody that's like, man, there's two great choices here. I don't know. I don't know how I'm going to do it, you know? <laughs> I haven't found that person yet, but they're probably out there. Uh, for a Dallas fan, right, like uh, the, the Cowboys can, can do no wrong and the Eagles are rejected and, and vice versa uh, on rivalry week here. Uh, we want to be righteous. We want the people that we care about, we want to be found right in their eyes. And so it's all based upon our actions. It's all based upon what we do. But, but a Christian righteousness is completely different than that. It's a righteousness that has been completely placed upon us. Martin Luther called it a passive righteousness when he described it. And he said, this is what Christians really wrestle with trying to understand. We grasp that there's a God who is holy. We grasp that we're broken and sinful people. We grasp that we want to be made right with him. But it's so hard for us to really process the fact that the righteousness that we need and we desperately desire has been given to us as a free gift. We just have a hard time living our life in light of that, but that's exactly what he's calling us to do in this passage. He's saying, live your life in light of that incredible truth. Process that. Think about that. Ponder that. What does that mean that, that my actions don't earn my righteousness, that Jesus has, has gifted his righteousness to me? Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, the wonder of the gospel is that everything that is actually true of Jesus is legally true of you as his follower. That Jesus actually lived a perfect life and God views you as if you had done that. That Jesus actually died for our sins and it's like we had paid that penalty, like we had died. And Jesus rose from the grave and it's like we rose with him. We talked about this a couple weeks ago that baptism is this picture of, of being buried with Christ and raised to new life. And we get that, but there's, there's a piece of which it's hard to live that out, right? Like we, we're like, yeah, I know I'm, I'm dead to my, my sins and I'm, I'm alive in Christ, but, but sometimes it's just hard to process that. I want to share an imperfect analogy with you here, right? Imagine that you're, um, that you're a, a peasant farmer living in this medieval kingdom and you're just kind of barely scraping by. You're just eking out a living and, 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 and you really put your reputation and your identity in your farming even though it's, it's hard work and, you, and you're just trying to strive to just do a little. And, and your dream, your goal would be if you could grow the prize carrot, right? <laughs> and take it to the, the medieval fair and you could win first prize because then people would recognize you for your farming prowess and, and how amazing of a farmer you were. And if you could just do that, your life would have meaning, right? But then suddenly somebody comes and says, hey, actually you are the rightful king, you're the rightful ruler of this land, this whole kingdom belongs to you, that you own it. And you get all the rights and privileges and responsibilities that go with that. Now, if you as a farmer said, wow, that's, that's really amazing, and then you just went right back to work farming and trying to grow that perfect carrot, 
you would look at it and you'd be like, wow, that, that, that's, that's so crazy, right? First of all, you're missing out on all the, the joys, the pleasures, the blessings of being the king, the, the rich food and the banquets and, and the respect and the honor. You're missing out on all that, but you're also missing out on your, your, your duties and your responsibilities that the kingdom is suffering because the rightful king is refusing to take on the responsibility that's been placed on him. In a similar way, if, if we as Christians have, have placed our faith in Christ, but then we just keep living the same kind of earthly, fleshly lives, just trying to grow a nice carrot, <laughs> instead of setting our minds and our hearts on the blessings that come with knowing Jesus, and these aren't always material blessings, right? These are, these are relational blessings. These are the, the joys of experiencing his closeness and his presence. And we also miss out on the responsibility. We're told in Ephesians that we are his workmanship created to do good works. And if we continue to just mess around with the, 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 the base elemental things of the world, we miss this higher calling, these great things that God desires to do in and through us. And so why do we want to set our minds on things above? Why wouldn't we want to set our mind on things that are above, right? Like, if this is who we are, why not live in the fullness of this new identity that we have? So the, that's why. Now, now, how do we do it? What does it actually look like? What does it actually look like to live in this way? And, and, and as is often the case, sometimes the best way to understand what it looks like is to, to identify what it doesn't look like. And so I want to share with you two ways that we kind of can miss the mark in this passage. Uh, the first is, is a legalistic approach to this passage. And so a legalist would, would say that the key to setting our minds on things that are above and seeking the things of God that means cleaning ourselves up for Jesus. That means identifying all the areas where we are impure, unrighteous, unholy, and correcting those to the point where we can be holy and we can elevate ourselves up to where Christ is, right? And they would, they would kind of skip over the first part here, verses 1 through 4 real quick, but then they would zone in on, on verse 5, and they'd be like, man, yes, this is what we got to do. We got to put to death all these bad things. We've got to clean all that up so that God will ultimately accept us. George Whitfield uh, identified this, this desire in, in our hearts, and he said that, that our tendency when we become aware of the gap between us and God is to fly to our duties and our responsibilities to try and prove that we're worthy of God. And he said something really controversial that, that, that's still controversial to this day. He said, we need to repent not only of our sins, but also of our efforts at righteousness. We need to repent of the areas where we're falling short, and we need to repent of the areas where we're trying so hard to earn God's love and favor that he's already given to us. Because when we're trying to earn it, when we're working so hard to prove that we're worthy of God's love, we're actually going in the wrong direction. We're actually walking further away from him. And so, so a legal heart will do this. And, and they become irritable. I should just say I, because I have this heart sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah. when, when you criticize their belief or their practices. Because when you're criticizing their beliefs or their practices, what you're really criticizing is their basis for righteousness. Their righteousness is tied up in what they do and what they believe. And so if you come to them and, and critique them or challenge them, they'll get very defensive, they'll get very angry, they'll get very aggressive because you're messing with their righteousness. They don't see that their righteousness is hidden with Christ on high, right? That their life is hid with him, that that's, that's where their righteousness comes from. And so legalists would look at this and they would say, stop sinning, read your Bible more, pray more, pray longer, serve more, give more. That's how you get above. That's how you set your mind on things above. And hey, there's probably nobody in this room um, 
for which those things aren't true, right? We do need to purge sin out of our life. We do need to read our Bibles more and pray more and, and serve and give and do all those things, but those are not how we obtain righteousness. That's not what setting our minds on things that are above is all about. We need to recognize what we have in Christ, and that will free us to live these powerful, beautiful lives. The other, the other side of the coin is an inspirational approach to this. It would say that, that setting our minds on things that are above means accepting Jesus' unconditional free love to know that he loves you just the way that you are. And if you just believe that, then all of your heart's desires will be given to you, right? If I just believe enough that Jesus loves me just as I am, then that thing I want, the promotion that I'm trying to go for, the house I want to buy, the relationship that I'd like to have, if I, if I just believe that, that I already have it in Jesus, then I can access it. I can use Jesus to get to that thing that I really want, right? Now, here's the truth. Jesus does love you just the way that you are. <laughs> he loves you completely, and he, and he knew all your flaws and, and, and the things that were messed up about you before you were even born, and he loves you anyways, but that doesn't become license to ignore his call to righteousness, right? That, that we've got to look at both of these. And so uh, an inspirational uh, per, uh, approach would say, let's just read the first four verses and let's read them again and let's read them louder and let's shout it and then let's just go do it, right? But it would ignore this call to remove the earthly things that are hindering us and pulling us down. Somebody who takes an inspirational approach uh, isn't that overwhelmed by the love of God. They're not that amazed. They expect it out of him. In fact, they feel entitled. And so a lot of times that somebody who comes with this approach will say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually kind of disappointed in God because I really thought that he loved me and yet there's all these things that I want and I don't seem to be getting them. He must not be hearing my prayers. Maybe I don't believe in him enough. Maybe I, maybe I'm, you know, maybe I just need to believe that he loves me just a little bit more when the reality of what's happening is that, that God loves them so much that he refuses to be used as a tool to to put the idol of their heart on the, on the throne of their life, right? That, that, that Jesus says, I won't let you use me to get the thing that you want instead of me. And so I'll cause you to fail in your pursuit of that so that you can succeed in your pursuit of me. When there's nothing left for you to go after but me, then maybe you'll finally come to the place where you realize that I'm all you need. That's what he desires to do in our hearts. So there's a third way. It's the way of the gospel. It's, the, it's this way of passive righteousness. The way to continually set our minds on things that are above and seek the things of Christ is to wrestle, to keep Christ on the throne, and to find our righteousness, our identity, our purpose, our peace, our hope, primarily and only in him. When we identify something that, that is, is trying to take that place in our heart and in our mind, when something else is the center of our life, then we come in repentance and we say, God, I, I can't believe I did this, but you knew I was going to do it. And I can't believe that you're going to forgive me, but I already know that you have. And, and I reject this, and, and I want to follow you. That's how we keep him at the center. That's how we keep our eyes on him. That's how we put ourselves in a position to be used by him in powerful ways. Now, Paul lists off uh, uh, these competitors that come in and try and steal this throne. And it's important to recognize this, that, that sin isn't something to just be messed around with. It's something that entangles us and keeps us from living with Jesus at the center of our hearts. And so he talks about sexual immorality and the things that lead up to it, impurity and passion, lust, evil desires, covetousness, wanting something that somebody else has. These are all steps along the path towards this, this immorality. And listen, um, uh, this is a relationship it's a gift 
in a married relationship, it's a powerful and beautiful thing. But that's where God draws the boundary. He says, if you're married to this person, this is a gift for you. If you're not married to this person, this is not a gift for you. This is sin. It's idolatry. It's disobedience. And you need to walk away from it because it will pull your heart away from me. He says the same thing about anger. He says um, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, lying. All of these things are just, they're just, um, they're ways to try and get what we want, but it's not ultimately what we need. And when we set our minds on him, we realize that this is true and it, and it opens us to live these, these beautiful open lives that are, that are lived in his image. N.T. Wright talked about the effects of sin that it has on us and what it does is it twists us up to this unrecognizable figure that we're no longer living out as the image bearers of God, that we become something different altogether. Listen to what he says. He says, the presence in the world of much dehumanizing evil, dehumanizing to its practitioners even more than its sufferers, indicates clearly enough how we may understand it. And by it, he means it, hell, the wrath of God, that, that why God opposes these things so much. Those who make evil a way of life begin to lose their humanity. They begin, in other words, to die even while they're still alive. Witness the dead eyes of the miser, the torturer, the prostitute. Paul's constant emphasis on full, genuine Christian humanity casts a clear shadow over non-Christian existence. Those who choose to live without God will one day find that they have forfeited their likeness to him altogether. That when we engage in this sin and, 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 and these things that entangle us, it, it twists us away from our true image. The world lies to us and tells us that that's where the fun is. That's where we find joy. That's where we find excitement. That's what, it's, it's a lie. Real hope and purpose comes from living out it's the image bearers of God that he created us to be, and we will be the most fully real versions of ourselves when our life is hidden with Christ. I want to close with a, a, a story that um, it comes out of Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, and he talks about this girl, and he says that she was cursed uh, with being beautiful, <laughs> that from a young age she was a beautiful girl, and, and so guys played her a lot of attention, and, and she came to realize pretty quickly that she could get what she wanted uh, by using her looks. But before long, the tables were turned, and she found that she didn't feel complete unless she had a man telling her that she was beautiful. And so it led her from one failed relationship to another, um, just trying to find somebody that would truly love her. And so he asked her, she was attending Tim Keller's church, and so he asked her, he said, he said hey, how did you finally break free from this? And she's like, well, I went to a therapy session, and, and the, the therapist advised me that I should stop pursuing my identity in these relationships, and instead that I should get a career and that I should, I, should, I should make a name for myself and become self-sufficient so I don't need a man to provide for me. And he's like, well, is that what you did? And she's like, no. <laughs> because I recognize that's just exchanging one idol for another, one false sense of security for another, one, one false righteousness for another. So she said, instead, I went to Colossians chapter 3, and I looked and I saw where it said that my life is Christ, that Christ is my life. And as I wrestled with what that meant and I applied that into my heart, I found that I was free to go and I could, I could meet uh, guys and I could, I could say, man, this is a great guy and this, this might even end up being my husband, but he will never be my life. My life is Christ. And so it freed her to love. And that's what Jesus wants to do. He wants to free us to be able to live these really full, beautiful, powerful lives. And so I reject the inspirational approach, but it's my hope to inspire you today. 
It's my hope to inspire you to set your eyes on things that are above. They're so much better than these earthly things that will fade away. That Christ is calling us to live lives in pursuit of him. And look what it says at the end of the passage. It says that this is the way that we achieve true harmony, right? Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the key to peace and unity when we realize that our righteousness comes from Christ and it is available to everyone. And our hope is that they would take up and grasp the hope and the righteousness that we have found in Christ. Will you join me in prayer? Well, Father, I thank you for... Uh...